This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge welcoming you to the Philosopher's Zone once again. Great to have your company and uh, we're going over to the dark side this week. Every now and then, the history of philosophy throws up a figure who is deemed to be a kind of a heretic, someone who philosophers feel needs to be cast out of the temple, as it were, and have their philosophy license taken away from them. One such relatively recent case has been the French-Algerian thinker Jacques Derrida, much of whose work goes out of its way to challenge all of those familiar philosophical virtues of clarity and logical consistency and the rigorous application of reason in search of truth. When Derrida was offered an honorary doctorate at Cambridge University in 1992, it caused a huge controversy that shook the philosophy department to its foundations. The no camp argued, as Derrida's critics often still argue today, that Derrida was not just a crappy philosopher, but that he was a kind of anti-philosopher, hostile to the discipline and, and out to burn it all to the ground. So that may be an unfair judgment on Derrida's work, but rightly or wrongly, it places him in a really interesting tradition that we're going to be talking about today. Because while there are and always have been people who think that philosophy is just a load of nonsense, what's kind of weird is that some of them are philosophers, and not just any old philosophers, but really central, canonical ones. Nietzsche, for example, who was incredibly rude about anyone and anything that he didn't happen to like, but he was especially rude about philosophers and the whole business of philosophy, and yet there Nietzsche is celebrated among the greatest philosophers of the modern age. So I've been wanting to talk for some time on the program about this tradition of anti-philosophy, and late last year I read a journal article that made me think that, okay, now is the time. The journal is Arena, the article is titled Philosophy Will Ruin Your Life, and its author is Justin Clemens, who's in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. The thing about philosophy is it is meant to be ruinous, or at least uh, one strong line of philosophy from the from the ancient world on onwards is philosophy not only can ruin your life and will ruin your life, it should, there's a moral imperative for it to ruin your life too, insofar as your life is, the unexamined life is not worth living, says Socrates. And what's the unexamined life? It's the life of of routine, of ritual, of, of simple obedience to inheritance and to authorities and so forth. And indeed, Socrates himself, like, uh, is his life ruined? He, he spends his life uh, accosting people around Athens and indeed is is finally prosecuted by the, and uh, uh, sent sentenced to death by by Athens itself uh, for impiety and, and corrupting the, the youth. That is for essentially ruining not the li- not only the lives of, the, of of young people who he accosts, but uh, the life of the city itself. And so for that, he's condemned to die. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll get back to uh, Socrates in a minute. But what about that take on philosophy that we also get from the ancient Greeks, that philosophy is a guide to living well or giving the best, living the best possible life, the sort of thing that has come down to us through Stoicism, for example. Philosophy is, as the art of living well. Uh, absolutely, but the but the question of what it is to live well, and this is precisely the abiding problem that that Socrates offers, and the Stoics, uh, their rival and the rivals, the Epicureans, Aristotelians, the Platonists, and so on, they all have a initial question: is 
how do you enter philosophy in the first place? There is a, a kind of seduction that the only true life, the only ethical life will be that of uh, uh, that's offered by philosophy. But since most people are already corrupted by their normal lives, they're ruined by normality. How do you ruin the ruination of someone who's ruined in order to seduce them in to the proper life, the happy life, the stoic life, for instance, but they'll be resistant to it, perhaps by education and by inclination, uh, precisely because they've they've chosen unhappiness. And the happy life, the philosophical life under those conditions, will look like an unhappy life from the outside. And so there is a even in the the, the schools of happiness that the profess happiness, there still has to be this moment of of in seduction or induction of conversion of transformation that is a, a moment of of ruination or, or what one could call ruination. But what about that that modern species of anti-philosophy which holds in suspicion the classical philosophical virtues of, of rigorous non-contradictory argument and clarity of expression and the, the valorization of a certain notion of truth? Um, Nietzsche, Derrida, there are plenty more. Is anti-philosophy in the modern era perhaps just another way of describing that field of tension that exists between analytic philosophy and what's generally known as continental philosophy? Is that really what we're talking about here? It's possible. I mean, that is a very that is most definitely, I think, uh, uh, one one avatar or contemporary expression of it. And I think that the history of this is, in, in fact, very interesting. The history of the term anti philosophy itself is interesting. It it begins, I guess, in the in the late eighteenth century, the uh, it, it, where it's not really the name for a discipline or a tradition or even a, a regional local school, but it usually is attested as arising in the context of eighteenth century anti enlightenment and anti. Uh, revolutionary thought. The anti-philosophs, for instance, are adherents of the Ancien Regime, those who stand for traditional conservative values against the radical philosophs such as Diderot, d'Alembert and Voltaire, particularly in the context of, of Enlightenment in, in France. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, this term itself changes and it gets taken up to nominate those who, as, as you're saying, try to undermine the pretensions of philosophy to truth, to knowledge, to morality, to non-contradiction and so forth. And in fact becomes a, a kind of term that's that, that's used in, and uh, we may talk about this again a bit later in, in in some of the radical art movements of the early 20th century. Tristan Zara, who's uh, you know one of the so-called uh, fathers of, of Dada, writes uh, several crazy experiments, all this little text about Monsieur R, the anti-philosopher, for instance. Now, that does really denominate to a kind of break between analytic and continental in a, a philosophy in its own way. Analytic philosophy usually identified with sort of post uh, Frege, Bertrand Russell, like Wittgenstein, the early Wittgenstein at least, and is now considered obviously dominant in, in most of the Anglophone and, and so, some German university systems, whereas Continental, uh, which is people, I guess, uh, thinkers like Hegel uh, above all, but also a lot of the, the 60s French as well. So anti-philosophy, I, I would definitely say for uh, people like a, a lot of Anglophone and analytic philosophers, I think they would uh, denominate the Continental tradition as, as indeed uh, avatar of anti-philosophy and not, not true philosophy at all. And we're talking about something modern here, but as you indicated earlier, you trace anti-philosophy right back to ancient Greece. You mentioned Socrates there, Socrates who's generally regarded as the founder of Western philosophy. You, you couldn't get a more canonical figure. How does he stack up as an anti-philosopher? 
There's so many ways to sort of uh, pass it out. One of the things that's very important about uh, Socrates, who claims, what does he say? He doesn't know anything. It's one of his major claims. And in fact, it's the people who claim to know that those people we now call the sophists who were forms of uh, mainly, I guess, traveling rhetoricians, Protagoras, Gorgias, a uh, whole load of names that have come down to us and not least in the Plato's dialogues themselves. Uh, Socrates' position is often one of, actually, I'm not a philosopher. I don't know anything. I just question those who claim to know. And in, in that sense, that uh, philosopher, uh, uh, Socrates would have to be a kind of anti philosopher because he he attacks the pretensions to knowledge of others who claim to have that knowledge, which is, as we know, often uh, considered uh, the philosopher knows, whereas we don't. Whereas philosopher, Socrates says he doesn't he doesn't know anything. The only thing he knows he doesn't know, apart from about one thing, this is in the symposium, I know about love. So to that extent, he's an ambivalent figure. He does not write very famously. And so the historical Socrates is one thing as opposed to the, the kind of figure of philosophical paternity that comes down to us in the dialogues of Xenophon or, or, or Plato uh, for another. And there's a, a lot of discussion about, well, he's only the first philosopher because Plato has made him such, but actually Plato is the first and Socrates has been kind of conscripted retrospectively into being a kind of authority figure. And so Socrates, to that extent, Maybe he isn't really a philosopher. He's the anti-philosophy at the very heart of the establishment of philosophy itself. And so his his nomination as the first Western philosopher is itself part of the problem we're discussing. Yeah, I find myself wishing that we had some writing of Socrates because he often strikes me as a sort of apocryphal figure in the way that he's come down to us, and never more so than when we hear him saying that the only thing I know is that I know nothing. It's perhaps a little too neat a formulation coming from a person who clearly considered himself to be someone with the sharpest set of philosophical tools in all of Athens, if not actually a philosopher. Well, that's right. And, and you know, the thing, however, that I guess Socrates at the, at the very least is compelled to do is to question, what do we know? How do we know it? What does it mean to know? Is it really a good thing to know? Is knowledge really what we're after? And, and you know, part of the, to, to come back to the, the, the dialectic we've already been uh, discussing between ruination and salvation, I guess, that moment of ruination is often expressed, I think, in some of the Platonic dialogues where Socrates simply reduces his interlocutors to a porier, to deadlocks, to the place where they can no longer continue to speak nor continue to be silent. That point of of, of, of no way forward, of contradiction that stalls. And that's definitely a, a part of the moment of philosophy as well, to push the other to a position where they have to admit on their own grounds that they too no longer know. Perhaps it's at that point that we then can do philosophy proper, the constructive aspect of it, and build the Republic, for instance. But it's not necessarily so. It still still keeps Socrates in that very ambivalent position. Yeah, you know? yeah. You mentioned um, Tristan Zara and the Dadaists before, and I often find myself thinking of the early 20th century surrealists and the Dadaists when I think about anti-philosophy, because you know these were people who were engaged, I guess, in a form of artistic production that set its face against conventional notions of art, a kind of anti-art. So 
Is that a helpful comparison to draw when we're thinking of the project, if you like, of Andy, or the impulse of Andy philosophy? And could we maybe bring in someone like Georges Bataille at this point? Because, you know, he's someone who was part of that milieu in early 20th century France and just always such a fascinating figure to put into the history of philosophy and see how he sits. It's, it's very awkward and yet he really belongs there, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And I think I think exactly what you say. I think, first of all, to turn to data and surrealism, yes, they're absolutely, uh, at least in, in, in certain moments, and, and data probably more expressly and, and, and flagrantly even than surrealism, like they're anti-art. The whole institution of art is sclerotic. Uh, it betrays, it has no fidelity to the very thing that it claims. It's idealizing when it's really just uh, like this, it's, it's murky roots are sunk deep in exploitation and falsification. And all of those early uh, sort of like Dada provocations, we've mentioned Sarah already, and he's a, you know, he's a, he's a promulgator of the anti-philosopher as much as the, as the, as the anti-art is that let's have a kind of wild experimentation of performance and painting and photography, no matter to, no matter what of music and and dance and so on and let's break down all of the the, the sort of encrusted and sedimented divisions that are keeping art and life apart keeping art in a false state of kind of suspended animation and keep life simultaneously as, as sort of elsewhere as life is elsewhere as, as as Rambo said so I really do see that uh that anti-art animus of, of of data and surrealism as a super important and certainly part of the a kind of history of anti-philosophy, whatever that might mean. And indeed, exactly as you pointed to, some extremely important thinkers immediately pick up on the, the Dadaist and Surrealist revolutions as having an import that goes far beyond uh, what we might think of as the sphere of art itself. For instance, Walter Benjamin would be one of them, but another one would be the Georges Bataille who you mentioned. And Georges Bataille, who immediately realizes that the surrealists are experimenting with materials in a way that goes beyond almost, in some ways, all human uptake. And, and Bataille becomes a kind of radical thinker of a materialism that's refractory to inherited concepts. For instance, in Hegel, who I mentioned before, the great uh, late 18th and early 19th century uh, German idealist philosopher, uh, Bataille takes him on via the Surrealists by trying to find things that are experiences formless horror, torture, death, murder, sexual extremity, actual practices that go beyond any any philosophical recuperation. And, and in fact, Bataille becomes this kind of weird anarchist in slippers, I think he's been uh, called by uh, at least one critic who, he was a numismatist, uh, Bataille, and, uh, you know, a, a very good librarian, as I understand it, but did write these incredible works in favour of practices of human life that are uh, so excessive they're irrecuperable by conceptual thinking, I guess. And at the same time, you can't quite exclude his work from the philosophical corpus, no matter how much you would like. And I guess that's something about anti-philosophy. It's sort of, as I'm promulgating it here to you anyway, David, is exactly that sort of thing. It's something that can't be excluded, may even be the essence of philosophy, and yet is like kind of refractory and and repellent to self-denominated philosophers themselves. And yet it has this kind of, you know, like a, a, a violent, vibrant, seething, unmooring quality that also touches on precisely the, the, the problem of, of, of what does it mean to live a good life? 
Is it necessary that your life be a bit ruined? What is ruination? How do we how do we even evaluate these things? And you know, Bataille is you know in his his version a prophet of excess, I guess. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm talking this week with Justin Clemens from the University of Melbourne. Our topic is anti-philosophy and that strange tradition within philosophy of thinkers who make it their business to question and sometimes attack all those cherished philosophical values and assumptions. Justin Clemens has written an excellent piece about this in the journal Arena. It's titled, Philosophy Will Ruin Your Life, and you'll find a link on the Philosopher's Zone website. What if we step outside of philosophy and, and consider anti-philosophy as a, a related but separate discipline? You, you wrote a book a few years back with the title Psychoanalysis is an Anti-Philosophy, which is such an interesting proposition because it, it points to a relationship between the two that not everyone might recognise. I mean, it's one thing to say that psychoanalysis is different from philosophy. How is it an anti-philosophy? One of the things that I, I was interested in is the relationship between something like psychoanalysis, which emerges in, in fin de siècle, I guess, like Viennese psychology, European psychology, the, the, the late 19th century, and seems initially at least to be part of a medical and, and moral uh, emergent psychological a sort of line uh, and and why does that have anything to do with philosophy as such why like is it just maybe it says things that are interest to philosophy or maybe not maybe it contradicts philosophy and maybe philosophy shouldn't have any interest in it and so on and i think to some extent that's true but one of the things that that i do think is something that you see recurrently in the history of philosophy, and it goes back definitely to Socrates, and is that one should live one's life according to reason, however that reason is conceived, and even though there may be competing versions of it, is that a life that's worth living is an examined life, and one that then, once you've examined it, you rethink how you should do it, and you clearly and calmly implement some means for doing so. And so you have the stoic exercise exercises like uh, to how to render yourself more uh, apathetic quite literally and today for instance you have say in the field of psychology cbt cognitive behavioral therapy which also gives you homework and exercises for regulating rationally your relationship to your life you know i, I look at what depends on me and i look at what doesn't and the things that i can change i work on and so forth right very strong philosophical lineage in that way. But psychoanalysis starts by doing something very, very weird. Rather than saying you can and must examine your life and then reorganize your life if you want to live happier or a better life according to these dictates of reason, psychoanalysis says, no, you will never do that. You can examine your life and what you will find, you will find horrible experiences of trauma, murder and death. And you will also find that these terrible experiences, which are constitutive of you and are necessarily repressed, is that they will return on you in the form of symptoms that you cannot think your way out of because they are so caught up with your very process of reasoning itself that they're past the problem rather 
rather than the solution. And so in that frame and to that extent, and uh, Freud himself, Sigmund Freud himself says in Studies on Hysteria, which is from 1895, he says, look, you know, I realized when I was I was speaking with these patients that that I couldn't describe them in rational or scientific terms. I could only kind of give a flavor of them by using terms drawn from poetry, the arts, and literature. I guess this most famously ends up in psychoanalysis or Freudian psychoanalysis as the Oedipal complex itself, a name that comes from a, a Sophoclean play, right? Oedipus the king. And so what I wanted to say about psychoanalysis is that whereas philosophy always takes the provocations of art and goes, let and affect and, and unconstrained reason and go, let's inject some logic into this, let's inject some mathematics, let's inject some science and curb the worst excesses of these unconstrained affects by processes of ratiocination of reason. Psychoanalysis actually goes the other way. It's literally an anti-philosophy in its directionality. It says, no, reason itself is part of the problem. Let's go for art. Let's unleash some some feelings and then see what happens. But you're not going to do that by your order, restraint, classicism, you know, to, to use terms from, say, Friedrich Nietzsche. It's more on the side of the Dionysian than it is on the side of the Apollonian. Yeah. And I mean, do you think that one way in which they intersect, perhaps more sympathetically, philosophy and psychoanalysis is that each is a literary undertaking as much as anything else. You know, they're both about narrative and interpretation and rhetoric, arguably so anyway. It's just that psychoanalysis admits it and embraces it, whereas philosophy rejects it. Yes. Look, I, I, I think that's definitely true. And I think there's also, but there's also something to do with the problem of, and to come back to say Stoicism for a moment, but also to the Socratics, to, to Plato, who sets up the first academy, to the Aristotelians, who set up a rival school to the academy, uh, to the Epicureans, who set up their own form of the, the garden where you'd sit and talk with friends, the Stoics, who are named after the Stoa, but were a portico, a particular. And the reason I I nominate all these different schools in this particular way as you realize that they're linked to, to places as much as to doctrines, and they're linked to different forms of interaction that humans have, can have in the portico or in the garden. Do you sit and talk? Do you have someone at the front giving a lecture? All of these ways, these institutions, different institutional forms of transmission, of education, of dissemination, are part of philosophy itself. Socrates is just a random guy wandering around Athens, but these, I guess, school, school people set up different ways of interaction. Today, philosophy is taught mainly in universities, right? It has a university structure. You have a professor. The professor gives a lecture. They lead classes. They're full of knowledge and they they might write incredible articles and they discuss in a in a polite and I guess contemporarily acceptable institutional form. But psychoanalysis is not not that psychoanalysis is a practice where a suffering person lies on a couch and speaks whatever comes into their head. So you can see there's a a, a differentiation at the level of institution itself. Not they're, they're not just doctrines and they're practices of life. And I think that the multiple practices of life that is, is part of the, the problem of anti-philosophy is that psychoanalysis really does invent a kind of new way of doing philosophy, even if it's, as I'm calling it, a kind of anti-philosophy, where people discuss things in hitherto unheard of ways. Socrates invented something 
in his harassment of those who knew by wandering around Athens in this way. Diogenes follows him in a different way. The Plato does something different with the academy, right? Like the, the, the Epicureans do something different with the garden. Like psychoanalysis does something different with the couch. And the university continues the great medieval scholastic thing of lectures and masters and students and seminars and, and so on. So what happens then if we try to psychoanalyze philosophy? I mean, this is something that Derrida is said to have done. You know, he, he lies philosophy on the couch and subjects it to psychoanalysis, which may or may not be a helpful way of describing his work. But if it is, what does he find, do you think? Look, it's a, that's uh, really interesting. And what Derrida seems to be doing is the attempt to find within what people themselves say evidence of what has been repressed, foreclosed, excluded, Excluded, and to show how traces of suppressed otherness are still seething within the attempt to control them philosophically according to, to priorities of, of presence, of idealization, of clear and definite precision, mathematization, and so on. And Derrida's trying to find within, as he would say, literally the text of philosophy itself, traces of this un ungovernable otherness, which nonetheless is, is still seething away even in the in the, the best kept uh, sort of treasure boxes of the dominant philosophical tradition. And from Derrida's own position, this would hold for both what you call continental and analytic philosophy, for philosophy and anti-philosophy. And indeed, you know, Derrida does have this, this sort of very interesting thing where he shows not only is uh, that the, the operations of something like these traces of otherness and ungovernable otherness at work in, in philosophy, but he will show that even in people trying to combat philosophy, that philosophy will return as well. And so the relationship between philosophy and anti-philosophy. So for instance, in that same book, there's an essay on Georges Bataille, who he praises for the same reasons that I guess we've been praising him, but then also shows that Bataille, you're still a bit philosophical at the very point that you didn't want to be. So even when you're trying to be Dionysian, there's a little bit of Apollo sneaks back into your own uh, chagrin, I suppose. And that's something that Derrida does. There's a, a kind of psychoanalyzing of philosophy, a philosopher, a philosophizing of psychoanalysis, but in the end, an attempt to undo any simple binary opposition, any attempt to exclude, any attempt to, every exclusion is already like undermine, self-undermining for Derrida. And so he's trying to sort of, in his own like peculiar way, to try and write something that that avoids any any simple dichotomies, exclusions, repressions, and, and, and so forth. So how much room do you think that there is in the academy these days for that kind of radicalism? And we know that Derrida has more or less comfortable been incorporated into the philosophical tradition now. What does that suggest? Does that suggest that academic philosophy, professional philosophy, has sort of come to terms with its own unconscious, its own un undoing, if you like? Or do you think that there's still resistance there? I'm afraid I would have to say under no circumstances has it done that, but it's done everything it can to re-territorialize Derrida. He's been pacified, beaten, now we've absorbed it. But part, and I guess this is where I would want to come back to the problematic of anti-philosophy again, is that anti-philosophy is that reminder that all of these reductions or pacifications are precisely that. And just because you have pacified, because you have absorbed or in 
concluded something is not the same as doing it justice, is not the same as having understood it. And in fact, maybe nothing of the kind, it may be a way of, you know, doing an injustice precisely by, by its inclusion. And so the role of anti-philosophy and anti-philosophers to place the emphasis on the person would be those persons who continue to reinvent ways to trouble that identification of philosophy, whatever it is, with the form of any particular form of institution that may claim to properly harbour it, support it, present it, and so on. I think we might have raised some academic hackles. Well, we'll see. Maybe some lessons, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll send them all to you. Uh, It's been great to talk. (laughs) Thanks so much, Justin. Uh, Thanks, David. Justin Clemens. He teaches in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. His book is Psychoanalysis is an Anti-Philosophy. And as I mentioned earlier, Justin has an excellent piece in the journal Arena titled Philosophy Will Ruin Your Life. Details on the website. This is the Philosopher's Zone and you can find us at ABC Radio National or the ABC Listen app. And from me, David Rutledge, it's goodbye for now. Thanks for your company and I hope you can join me next week. 